KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. My father took me to my first live fight as a present for my 14th birthday. I can picture the evening I, I saw when we walked in. The ring was empty. The show hadn't started yet. And you saw the cigarette and cigar smoke over the ring. It was like an epiphany. I just knew that boxing was going to be a big part of my life. And our guest this week is boxing promoter extraordinaire Jay Russell Peltz, who has been promoting fights in the Philadelphia area for decades. He has a new book out, a memoir, $30 and a cut eye. And uh, first of all, sir, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Talk to me a little bit about the book. How long was this in the works for you? Well, when you say in the works, I mean, the thought of it was for years, but I never really had time until COVID came along and we couldn't promote anymore. So I, you know, ever since March of 20, I guess I finished writing at the end of August, beginning of September of 21. So I guess, you know, the actual time to write the book was 19 months but the thought's been there for years was putting it together was writing it was it an enjoyable process yeah and very emotional um you know as i've said i've said i'm a big saver i've saved everything i'm a collector and um rereading the stories the newspaper stories in the scrapbooks and online talking to former fighters and watching videos especially brought back a lot of wonderful memories. So let's talk about your origin story with boxing. Where was it something when you were growing up you you were a fight fan? What what's your first memories of being enthralled by boxing? On the summer of 1959 late late in the summer when I got home from overnight camp, my parents sent me away to overnight camp beginning when I was 4 eight weeks. I watched a fight on television between Gene Fulmer and Carmen Basilio for a piece of the world middleweight title. And um, I liked it. I liked it. It was the only sport that my father even had some interest in. His father, who I really never knew, he died when I was three or four, was a big fight fan. But um, I started watching the Friday night fights, mostly from Madison Square Garden and the Wednesday night fights, mostly from Chicago. And after about, you know, a year, a little over a year of whining and pestering, my father took me to a my first live fight as a present for my 14th birthday at the old convention hall on, uh, I guess, 34th and Spruce, Civic Center Boulevard or whatever it's called. And when I walked in that night, you know, in those days, if you went to the fight, you wore a tie and jacket. I thought I was the coolest kid on the block. We sat on the second row. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. There was someone sitting in our seat, an elderly gentleman. We asked him to move. He did. No problem. I can picture the evening I, I saw when we walked in. The ring was empty. The show hadn't started yet. And you saw the cigarette and cigar smoke over the ring. It was like an epiphany. I just knew that um, boxing was going to be a big part of my life. Now, I grew up in the suburbs, Balakinwood. So my interaction with black and Hispanic people was limited, would be over, over, you know, isn't even close. I didn't even go to school with any black kids until I went to um, 
Lorimer in high school, and they were like, I think I looked this up, they were like 16 or 18 in my graduating class of 459. The only other black people I'd ever come across worked for my dad, who was a plumber. So I thought I was the coolest kid in the block, really. I go into the fights, hanging out with black people, hanging out with Hispanic people. It was a whole new world for me growing up in uh, Ballack-Kinwood. So as a youngster, did you have a favorite boxer or was it just the the whole event that that captivated you? Well, it was the whole event, but my boyhood idol was Harold Johnson from Manion, who at the time was the number one contender. I started buying the Ring magazines. I saw it at the old Evans Drugstore in the Ballack-Kinwood Shopping Center. And I bought my first ring magazine early in 1960. And we always had the picture of a number one contender in the center with the world ratings. And it seemed like every month it was Harold Johnson. He didn't have a nickname. It wasn't smoking Harold Johnson. It wasn't kid Harold. It was just Harold Johnson. It was just a classic name. And I didn't even see him fight until 1961. But he was my... Um, he was my boyhood idol. Other kids were Tommy McDonald, Del Ennis, Robin Roberts, you know, Paul Arison. Mine was Harold Johnson. Did you box it all yourself growing up? <laughs> I actually, like Harold, I thought I, I wanted to be the light heavyweight champion of the world. So um, my father found this place at 1320 Art Street, which in the later years became the headquarters for the uh, city's blue collar workers union but there was a uh, a gym on the second floor of the El- called the Elks Club the building was known as the Elks Club and there was a fellow there who taught boxing to about 12 or 14 kids on Saturday mornings of course on Saturday mornings i had hebrew school so by the time hebrew school was over <clears throat> the class was over but I learned how to take the bus and the subway, and I went down, I got off at City Hall, walked around the corner to 1320 Arch, and the the, uh, the coach, a fellow named Al Jonas, would always ask one kid from the class to hang around so I'd have someone to box. So I did that from like January to June of 1960. So 60, I was what, I was 13. Right, I hadn't gone to a fight yet. And at the end of the season, they matched all the kids in the class up. So maybe there were 16 kids in the class, eight fights. I was the next to last fight, so I like to think I was the semifinal. So I boxed a kid that I had actually known years earlier before we moved from Winfield to Ballack Kenwood, and we fought the only draw in the tournament when the, uh, of the day. And when it was over, the coach, knowing that I was a big boxing fan, he had this little crumpled brown paper bag with all the medals in it. And he said, boy, I sure hope I have enough medals for the kids who box the draw. And he did. And I used to wear that medal around my neck. So this was June 4th, 1960. I would say about 10 or 15 years ago, I finally got it engraved because I looked up a calendar from 1960 to see what the first Saturday was in 1960. And I took it down to Spike's Trophies and had it engraved, Elks Club, June 4th, 1960, on the back. I still have it. I went away to camp that summer, and when I came back and went to the Elks Club, it had closed down. So somebody told me 
that they were teaching boxing at the Jewish Y at Broad and Pine. So I went over there and there was an elderly guy there teaching kids how to box. And I said, I want you to take a look at me. So as he's putting the gloves on me, he says, you're going to box that tall kid over there. For some reason, I remember he was tall, black wavy hair from Northeast Philly. So while the coach is putting the gloves on me, the kid comes over to me and says, listen, I'll box you, but you can't hit me in the mouth because I just got a new set of braces. And if they get messed up, my mom will get pissed off. <laughs> so I don't think that was Jewish amateur boxing back in those days. I don't think Lou Tendler or Benny Leonard had anything to worry about. Did you enjoy boxing as much as you enjoyed watching it? It's it's the it's the toughest sport you can imagine. There was one day, you know, back then gloves were weren't filled with foam rubber, they were filled with horse hair. So the heaviest gloves were like 16-ounce gloves, and I guess that's what we sparred with. But when you're coming in at the end of a class, and all the kids have used those gloves, and when your hands are inside the gloves, they start to sweat. And the water weighs those. You, you think you've got 16 pounds on each hand instead of 16 ounces. And the coach is laying up against the ropes one day, and I've got the headgear on. Now, this headgear covered your entire face except for two ovals for your eyes. And he's saying, punch, punch. And I could hardly lift my arms. And I, tears were coming down my face. But thank God he couldn't see because of the headgear covering everything but the two ovals. So just to hold your hands up, Matt, for three minutes, I don't think people have any idea what it's like just to hold your hands up let alone hit somebody and try not to get hit. Just a hard, hard sport. So, no, I didn't. I mean, no, I didn't enjoy it. As It's it's too hard. It's it's just too hard. You mentioned you went to Lower Mary, you went to Temple, right? And am I correct? You actually, you majored in journalism. You know, I like to brag that I was the outstanding male journalism graduate. 1968, and I had Ray Dinger in my class, and Ron Pollock, whose dad Harvey was the one that wrote 100 for Wilt Chamberlain, and mm -hmm. Frank Bertucci, who worked for the Daily News and Inquirer, and um, that's my uh, most prestigious um, academic honor, and I love it. Out of college, you started working at the Bulletin? No, I was in college. I got okay. up, I started working at the Bulletin Saturday nights during my junior year and the summer between the, the junior and senior year i got a job on what they call the lobster shift which was midnight to eight because in those days the newspapers especially the inquiry and the daily news would print five or six editions mm -hmm. like if you could go down to the newsstand at 13th and market on a saturday night it's let's say 8 30 and buy a newspaper would say phillies leave milwaukee five three after six innings that's how we got our news so I worked the night shift, and then um, in late August, early September, before my senior year, Jackie Wilson, who was the sports editor, he came in early one morning, and he called me aside, and he said, Russell, you know, you're going back to school for your senior year. Why don't we keep you on Saturday nights, and when you graduate, we'll bring you back. Well, I almost cried. And... I think he saw the tears welling up in my eyes and 
and I said this, and I meant it. I mean it as much today as I meant it then. I said, Mr. Wilson, I'll work for nothing. And I would have. I would have worked for nothing because I thought it was so cool that while in college, I had a full-time job at what I wanted to be in the newspaper business. And he looked at me and he said, don't worry about it. We'll keep you on and we'll pay you. So I'd work midnight to eight. I'd go to school from nine to one. I go home and go to sleep. And then I'd go back to work at the Bulletin. And I loved every, I loved every minute of it. What did you do at the Bulletin? Mostly I was a copy on the copy desk. But I mean, we had writers like Sandy Grady and Frank Belofsky. And I mean, we had a golf writer. We had a boxing writer. Red Hamer was the track and field guy. Belofsky and Frank Brady covered college basketball. George Casita covered the 76ers. I was editing their stories, writing the headlines, uh, laying out pages. I worked with Herm Rogel, who was a legend with his people in sports column, another Temple grad. I mean, they had some really talented people in the newspaper business back then. And uh, Herm Rogel used to write on his pad, he used to write T-G-M-S-S-T-W-H-E-K, the greatest morning sports staff the world has ever known. I mean, if we made a mistake, if Carl Yastrzemski was batting 356 and we put that he was batting 359, you didn't have to get yelled at. You felt like two feet tall. I mean, it, we, we used to laugh at the Daily News and the Inquirer, all the mistakes they had. There was a quarterback at Penn, the, the Bernie Zabrenji, Z-B-R-Z-E-Z-N-J. We were the only people who could sell it. Carl Yastrzemski, Y-S-T-R-Z-E-M-S-K-I. I mean, we, we just, we, we were good and we loved what we were doing. We really loved it. When the wire service stories would come in, the Inquirer and the Daily News would just print them, UPI or AP. So let's say, oh, let's say the New York, uh, you know, the Yankees were playing the Red Sox and they beat them 5-3. Well, if there was a guy on the Red Sox that came from the area, like he went to Conestoga High School, or he went to St. James of Chester. We would highlight him in the story to keep it local. We would rewrite all the wire service stories. We were we, we were good. I can hear the passion for your time at the Bulletin. It's very apparent. So why do you leave journalism to start promoting, and how do you start that journey? Well, the boxing writer there, Jack Freed, had been covering boxing for the Bulletin since 1928. And he and I, we never really had a good relationship. Maybe he saw me as his successor. I would correct things. Like if he put in his story, there was a fight at the, about a fight at the arena and it was really a convention hall. I would change it. And then now this is 1968, 69. He's still referring to Muhammad Ali in print as Cassius Clay. I mean, so one day I changed it and he came in early. And he went ballistic. He hasn't changed his name legally. His cash is clay. He stormed down to the composing room where the line of type operators were. And he made them pull out the lead type. I mean, for the second, all the other editions and change it. And we just, we just didn't get along. And um, I went away to basic training in the Army in September of 68. 
And when I came back the end of January or February, Freed had gotten an extension on his retirement, which was mandatory in those days at 65. And I said to myself, you know, I don't want to sit around and wait for this guy to die before I can get his job. Now, all the stories had to be in by 6 a.m. And the bulletin morgue, which is, you know what the bulletin, the morgue is like the library. They had every story, every photo. So I had off time and slow time. I would go in there and I would start studying all the boxing stories, especially the ones from the Blue Horizon, because it was the only place I thought I could afford at the time. And I wrote down the dates of the fights, the nights of the week, who fought in the main event, what were the gross receipts, what were the net receipts, and I would study this. And, you know, I, I was living at home, so I had no expenses, really. And um, I had been paid for years as being an editor at the Temple News, which was a daily newspaper back in the day. And, and so I had that money saved up. And by the time August of 69 came around, I had about $5,000 in the bank. And, you know, and, and the woman I had ma- was going to marry at the time, she was, she had gotten a job at the Inquirer. So, you know, we met in journalism class and, um, I wanted to take a shot. I, you know, you can do that when you're young and, and listen, we didn't, I don't know, it's different today, but I didn't think about money. I thought about doing something I wanted to do. And she said to me one night, we were at Pagano's at Penn. She says, what makes you think you can do this? And I said to her, well, you know, it'll take me about six months to blow this 5000 and we'll have this great scrapbook to show our kids about the time their daddy was a boxing promoter. And Jackie Wilson at the Bulletin told me that he would keep me on one night a week for $30 a night, and I could work like Christmas and Easter, and I was welcome back if it didn't, if it didn't turn out. And I had met some people cause I had written some stories when Freed was on vacation and I met some people in boxing and, um, it was all about timing, Matt, because 1969 from January through August, there were only five boxing cards in the whole town. It was a post Olympic year. There was a lot of good young talent around. And I had gotten friendly with Tom Cushman of the Daily News, who I consider to be the greatest boxing writer of my lifetime. I had met him in in Oklahoma City in December of 67. He had just come east from the Denver Post to work for the Daily News. And I was out there as a stringer for the Bulletin covering Temple in the All-College Classic, which is one of the big college basketball tournaments of the time. Anyway... We'd eat dinner together with the team, and we got friendly, and I'd read his copy. And thank God, because if I'd had to depend on my own paper and the Inquirer, I would have never made it. Cushman fought a 22-year-old college grad from the main line getting into boxing promotion. was a great story. And boxing writers back then took, took favors from boxing promoters for publicity. And Cushman told me that if he ever found out that I was taking care of the writers at the Bulletin Inquirer, it would be the end of our relationship. I said, Tom, I'm a journalism major. I, I, I would never even think of that. So he helped me. 
he helped me. I was known as the mod boy promoter because I'd wear Mickey Mouse t-shirts and bell bottoms and thick white belts and granny glasses. And I went years without getting my hair cut. So he helped me. And we went from there. I, ran, I, I went to visit Jimmy Toppy at the Blue Horizon, who owned it. And even though he later thought I was wacko and would never get a license, he helped me. And, you know, the publicity, we sold out the first night. I made, I made $1,500. Now, this is 1969, the first night. Of course, we ran 15 shows in seven and a half months. And when that was over, I'd made about four, maybe $4,500. But I was having fun. I was... I was doing what I wanted to do, and you could do that. You could get into boxing then, and you could make it successful because live fights and selling tickets, boxing was a big deal in this city, a very big deal. I mean, boxing was a big deal in the country, and Philly was at the forefront. So talk to me. You're promoting a fight. Where do you start? Does it start with the fighters? Does it start with one fighter? Does it start with the venue? Does it depend on the situation? Kind of, where do you start? Well, back then, I knew the Blue Horizon was the only place I could go, that I could afford, because the rent was like $300. And I planned to run every other week, which I did except for the holidays. So I started from there, and I'd gotten friendly with a fellow named Pat Duffy, who was like Mr. Amateur Boxing. He was the manager of the 1960 Cassius Clay and 1968 George Foreman Olympic teams. And he had ties in the pro ranks through a guy named Penny Schaefer, who was head of the local bartenders union. And he had a pipeline to Benny Briscoe. And he said that we could give you Briscoe for like a thousand dollars against a percentage of the gate. And whether I can't quite remember how I got the opponent, Tito Marshall, who had beaten Briscoe a few years before. And um, and then he had a few other fighters, like a heavyweight from Kensington, named Jerry Judge, a couple other guys. I started going to the gyms, which was something that boxing promoters didn't do. They had other guys do it for us. So here I'm a 22-year-old kid going into these gyms in North Philly, uh, South Philly, West Philly, and I guess people, you know, they it was a different world. Guys wanted to fight. They didn't care who they were fighting. They just wanted to fight. They wanted to make a living. They all had day jobs other than Joe Frazier, and it, was, it wasn't that hard. Philly was, the gyms were packed, and with only five fight cards in eight months, there were a lot of guys who were hungry and just wanted to fight, so... You know, it was on-the-job training. How difficult was it then and, and throughout your career matching fighters, finding good matchups, and finding matchups that people would come come to see? Back in the day, it wasn't hard at all. It wasn't hard at all. There was no videos. Guys didn't, you know, guys were just happy to fight. That's what the that's what the they just wanted the action. They wanted to to make money. I mean, we were paying fifty dollars for four rounds, seventy five dollars for six rounds. I think the biggest guarantee I ever had for a main event the first season was a thousand bucks. I mean, it was always tough getting out of towners to come to Philly because Philly fighters were always feared. But I, I was able to do it, and a lot of Philly guys in those days 
were willing to fight each other because if you were the best in Philly, you were one of the best in the world. It wasn't, it wasn't as hard as it became in later years. I mean, in the 21st century, um, you could, you could match two guys who trained alongside each other in the same gym. That's unheard of today. Back then it was like breaking sticks. When do you, when you talk about, you know, that first fight and was there, as you're going through it and you're putting it together and one fight leads to another, uh, did you ever have any doubts that this could be where this is where you belong and that you could do this for the duration? I don't think I thought that far ahead. It got aggravating um, at the end of the first season, but you know, I got lucky because the last show of the first season when Cyclone Hart and Willie the Worm Monroe, who were two stars of the early years, scored spectacular knockouts in front of a big crowd in May of 1970. Everybody had a good time, and it kept me up. And then that summer, I got probably the biggest break of my career. I was standing outside Sherry's ticket office at 15th and Walnut, and there was a, uh, an old-time fight guy there named Jack Puggy. It wasn't his real name, but he was known as Jack Puggy. He worked for Herman Taylor, the major promoter in town. And he tells me that he had been offered Benny Briscoe's contract. It was his age. He was about 68. He said, what do I need another fighter for? So I didn't act excited or anything. I just, you know, the wheels started turning. And because Benny Briscoe was like, had become the man. At that point, other than Frazier, who re- who didn't fight in Philly, really, Briscoe was the man. And um, I said, how much is it, Jack? He said, 2500 So, you know, I took my time and then I left and I sped home to my apartment in Wissicken Drive in, I guess it's Germantown, West Maryland area. I called my brother-in-law on the phone, who was a CPA and the paymaster at the fights. I said, Arnold. You buy Briscoe's contract. You'll be his manager. I'll be his promoter. We've got all these young middleweights in town. Cyclone Hard, Fiddley Watts, Willie the Worm Monroe. One day, each of them are going to have to fight Briscoe to see who's top dog in the city. Whoever controls Briscoe controls those fights. And whoever controls those fights controls boxing in Philadelphia. So... Uh, he was managed at the time by a guy named Jimmy Islin, whose father was a major shareholder in the New York Jets. Phil Islin. But Briscoe owed him $800. It was 3300 I took a train to New York, went to a Palm restaurant for the first time, and we made the deal. So Briscoe became the stopper. In other words, I was telling someone this the other day. When the Dodgers back in the 60s would lose two or three in a row, it was Koufax's turn to pitch. He was the stopper. Briscoe became my stopper. I could lose money on two or three shows, but Briscoe would pull me out because he was going to be a big deal. If, and I said to this, and I, I wrote this somewhere, if I hadn't hooked up with Briscoe, the title of my book wouldn't have been 50 years in boxing. It would have been 50 weeks in boxing. But I could have never made it without him. There's, there's no doubt about that. I just couldn't have done it. 
Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with legendary boxing promoter Jay Russell Peltz right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week is boxing promoter Jay Russell Peltz. So a couple of years after that, you become boxing director at the Spectrum for uh, the rest of the 70s. What was that like? Well, it, once again, it was timing. Um, I had moved from the Blue Horizon to the arena in 72 full-time. I had done some shows at the arena in 71 because the fighters of the Blue Horizon were starting to outgrow it. And um, But at the end of the year, I think my arena shows, I did about 10 or 11, I was showing a profit of like $2,300 for the year. And then Steve Greenberg, who was director of promotions, called me and wanted me to meet with him and Lou Scheinfeld, president of the Spectrum, and they hired me for what was what was fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen seventy three. I think that's worth about I don't know about seventy or eighty thousand. I don't know. It depends on whether money doubles every ten years or you just go by the internet. Anyway, it was timing, but. I still ran the program at the Spectrum like I was independent. I still stapled posters on abandoned storefronts and light poles. I still sold tickets out of my briefcase. I still wrote the press releases or gave them to the PR guy because nobody there knew anything about boxing. And we we took a beating the first year. It was almost my last year. We lost then... 50 or 60,000, which today would be about 400,000. Lou Scheinfeld was quoted in the Inquirer saying, if we can't turn it around or at least break even, the next year we're out of the boxing business. So Alan Flexer, who was the vice president controller, took me to lunch one day in the Blue Line Club, later became Ovation. I guess basically to find out whether we were going to continue. And I said, listen, if I can get the Philly guys to fight each other, we can turn this around. And I don't know if he believed me or not, but um, he said, go ahead, see what you can do. So I went to all the gyms in the city and I posted a a letter on the on, in the gym saying there was going to be a meeting of all the managers at the Joe Frazier's gym at Broad and Glenwood on such and such a day in December. So everybody showed up. Oh, there must have been 50, 60 people there, mostly managers and trainers. There might have been a couple of fighters. And I said, listen, if you guys don't start fighting each other, we're going to be back at the arena. And because the Spectrum has ice capades and basketball and concerts and the flyers, they don't need us. So let's just go back and start doing what made Philly great as a boxing town, fighting each other. We're out of business. And they agreed. They actually agreed. And we started making, you know, Cyclone Hart fought Monroe and Hart fought Boogaloo Watts and Sammy Goss fought Tyrone Everett. And from 74 on, we were as big as Madison Square Garden, the Forum in Inglewood or the Olympic in L.A., especially for black fighters. We were the number one arena in the country for black boxers in those days. But we were drawing five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen thousand people to our fights. Is there a moment where you really feel like you've arrived and you just kind of look around and 
it just, I mean, it obviously always felt right, but just, I guess the original point of the question, a moment when you felt like you really arrived. No, I never thought about stuff like that, Matt. You know, when I was writing the book, I said to myself, you know, looking back at the fights, a lot of which I didn't see because I was busy in the box office in the early days before I went to the Spectrum. And I, I wondered, I said, did you really enjoy it? Did you get to enjoy it as much as you're enjoying it now, watching it? Because it's, it's, it's your job and, and, you know, one fight leads to the next. So, no, I, I never... I never thought that I'd arrived. I did realize after a while that when you're 22, getting into a business um, where everybody is a lot older than you, the promoters, the managers, the trainers, and all the fans and the young people in the business are rooting for you because you're the new kid on the block and they want to support you. But when you get up there, like in a, a when you're up there and you're director of boxing at the Spectrum, now you're the bad guy. Now everybody wants to knock you off. And I found out over the years that's interesting because Jimmy Toppy always told me, the owner of the Blue Horizon, he said, don't worry about the other guy. He said, you start worrying about the other guy, you'll lose track of your own business. Just, just keep plugging ahead. So... Um, I realized that all the other promoters who came into town in all these years since 1969 were more interested in taking over or putting me out were tending to their own shows. You know, one guy came in after a couple of good shows. There's a new sheriff in town. I mean, come on. He, he was right. Toppy was right. Tend to your own business. Don't worry about it. Actually, competition makes you better. It makes you better, makes you hustle more. And it turns out that that's when I look back and see the best times, it was when there was competition around and you had to hustle a little more. How does, as you're going through these years, Blue Horizon, Spectrum, you eventually start working with the casinos in Atlantic City. How does the job change? Does it get harder? Uh, is it as exciting is it more for lack of a better term nonsense getting involved how does the job of boxing promoter evolve over your career well when casino gambling came along in 79 80 and i was able to get out of my contract at the spectrum because i saw what was happening it, boxing in the 80s was this cent the 20th century was the bomb. It was the best. It was the best. I was involved in the last golden era of boxing in Philadelphia. So when the casinos came along, it took a lot of weight off you because you could just make matches and you didn't have to worry about promoting. If there was a fight that came along, let's say if Briscoe and Hagler had fought in the 80s instead of 78 when we drew 15,000 at the Spectrum. So a casino would say, hey, Russell, We'll give you, let's say, resorts or valleys where they could put it in convention. We'll give you a site fee. We'll pay you 100000 $150,000. we will keep the gate. We'll give you free rooms, free meals, 
put up the ring, take care of the advertising, print the tickets, the ushers, the security. All you have to do is pay the fighters. You keep the TV money. So basically, you become a matchmaker. And that's what it's like when you do business at a casino. When they were paying site fees, when Atlantic City, they don't do that anymore, really. But in those days, so it was a pleasure. And Philly dried up in the 80s as a fight town. And the casinos, I think, I think there was 841 fight cards in Atlantic City in the 80s. And there was like 129 in Philadelphia. Think about that. You know, one, two years, like 84 and 85, there were like 150 fight cards just in Atlantic City. Forget Jersey, just in Atlantic City. The chop was running every Tuesday night without TV. So it, financially, the 80s were great. And, and you know what? It, it was a great time, the 80s. Then around 86, I got a call from Dan Duva from Main Events, Lou Duva's son. He had a contract with USA Network, but he was busy. You know, he had Hamara's champions, Johnny Bumpus, Alex Ramos, Tyrell Biggs, Meldrick Taylor, all those guys. He had a USA Network date on his hands that he didn't have time for. So he says, why don't you take it? Because I was still running at the Blue Horizon while I was in Atlantic City. So he gave me a show in June of 86. He gave me I was, the rights fee from USA Network was $2,000. And I put a show on at the Blue Horizon in June of 86. We lost a couple dollars, like $1,200. But it was a good, it was a big upset in the main event. And then the next month, he gave me another show that he couldn't handle. This time, the site fee was $3,000, but he kept the 1000 for himself. And we drew a big crowd. And... USA executives, I knew they were watching. I got one more show out of them. And the next year, I got my own contract with USA Network. So the Blue Horizon became a regular stop on their weekly Tuesday night fights. And people around the country who had only heard about the Blue Horizon, now they were seeing it up close and personal. But not only around the country, in the city. And they said, hey, this is a cool place. And by the time we got to the 90s, Matt, and we went back to reserve seating, see, it was general admission for many years at the Blue Horizon, and all our white-collar professionals who used to have season tickets at the Spectrum, they didn't want to get to the Blue Horizon at 6 o'clock and rush upstairs to get the best seats. They wanted to take their clients out to dinner, you know, schmooze around, and then get there when the first fight starts and have their seats waiting for them. So in the 90s, you couldn't get a ticket to the blue. We sold out every show. And when you know you're going to sell out every show, no matter who is fighting, you can match kids with upside down records in, in, in the, in the undercard, as long as you know, it's a good fight. And people came to the blue horizon, not to see certain fighters, just to see competitive fights. And that's very rare, very rare in boxing. And it was so kids who would come to me today and say, hey, I can sell 100 tickets. Back then, I didn't need them because when you have a kid who can sell 100 or 200 tickets, you want to make sure he wins. But I didn't care. I didn't care. I didn't need it. I didn't care who won. I was a 
fans promoter, not a fighters promoter. But when USA Network got out of the boxing business in 98, and ESPN tried to take over, but never the same. I actually was the the matchmaker for USA for a terrible experience. I, I mean, for ESPN, a terrible experience in my career with them. Ooh. What made and, it so such a bad experience? Well, when they hired me to be the... I, I was hired in 98 by ESPN to decide what fights were going to be on the Friday Night Fight series. I was the matchmaker. Guy would call me, you know, can I have a show? And I said to myself, wow, after all these years of making competitive fights, it paid off. Now I'm going to be the guy that can deal with all the promoters around the country and decide which fights we were going to be, what we were going to show. And there were some people who said it was a conflict of interest because I was still doing like half a dozen shows myself. You know, it looked bad. But what, but the problem was the people who had hired me at ESPN soon moved off to ABC. And I was left with the underlings in the old boys' school. And I had a contract. I should have insisted on more than a one-year contract. So at the end of the year, they slashed my salary in half and made me subordinate to the guy who I had replaced. So it was a terrible experience. I didn't get to make too many matches after 1999. But at the time, business was slow and it was my best option, so I kept the job. But it was it was honestly a humiliating experience. I was struck watching the Muhammad Ali special with Ken Burns about big fights. There was an energy surrounding them. It captivated... I mean, you know, on the level of Ali, George Foreman, it captivated the country. It was something everybody knew about, looked forward to, was talked about. We don't have that anymore. Is that something that's changed with the sport of boxing? Is it we've become so siloed off in our media and what we watch and people can can really dig in on the things they really enjoy and boxing kind of fell between the cracks what what has happened to fight night like in the big picture you know matt when i about a year i guess on the anniversary of ali frazier one which was march of this year right it was this past march espn did a big thing on it and they showed the whole i was at the fight i was there and i watched the replay and the way they presented it and I got emotional because, you know, when you're around, when you see how good it can be, and that was as good as, that's not only the greatest sporting event of all time, in my opinion, maybe the greatest social event of all time. I, I, I started to well up because I know it, would, it will never be that again. It's gone. It's over. It's never going to recapture that. It, but and there's so many reasons why the, the the main one is the proliferation of there's a world champion on every street corner. And the best analogy that I give everybody is suppose there were no baseball playoffs and suppose every division winner claimed he was the world champion. Well, that's what boxing is. It's as simple as that. So you don't get to see, you know, it's, you don't get to see 
Federer play Nadal all the time or Djokovic play Murray. You don't get that. Everybody's jockeying for one of the 27 gazillion titles. And the only reason boxing is even somewhat viable is because ESPN and the European streaming service, The Zone, are hemorrhaging money, overpaying top rank and Eddie Hearn to put on these fights that they think will eventually grab the public's attention and bring boxing back, but it's not going to happen. They, they, they're paying fight. They're paying five. Listen, it's great for the fighters. Some fighters. They're paying $5,000 fighters $50,000. Okay. To fight ordinary guys. So when you want one of those fighters to fight a real fight, oh my God, you just gave me, forget 50,000. They're giving them three or four million to fight turkeys. So when you want to make a fight between the two best welterweights in the world, who are Terrence Crawford and Earl Spence, and you've been paying them three and four million to fight easy guys, now they want like 20 million to fight each other. It's, it's, I, you know, I, I don't get it. I, I, you know, I, I, if I, somebody gave me, like Aram, top rank gets about 85, they get about between 65 and 85 million a year from ESPN. And Eddie Hearn gets about 85 million a year from the zone. If I had that kind of money, I wouldn't care who won or lost. If I have a three or four year, make the best fights. I mean, the fights that you can make with that kind of money boggles the mind. But then every now and then you have what happened a couple weeks ago between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, which it turned out to be a terrific fight. It was a terrific, exciting fight. So it's boxing still has it, but it doesn't do it enough. So all the fights you worked in the city and you talked about in the early days, you weren't even able to to watch the fights because you're in the box office and such. But best fight in Philadelphia you've ever seen. Not necessarily biggest draw, most notorious, anything like that. But when you look back over the years, best fight in Philadelphia you ever saw? Uh, the first fight in J- July 26, 1977 at the Spectrum between then Matthew Franklin, who later became Matthew Saad Muhammad, and Marvin Johnson from Indianapolis for the North American Light Heavyweight Championship. Eleven and a half rounds of just two men beating the hell out of each other. And uh, even on the scorecards, 1-1-1 one, one, and one going into the 12th, last round. And Matthew Franklin, the kid from South Philly, finally puts Marvin Johnson down. And when you watch the video and you see all the hands jumping into the air and the energy in the building, the, I'm privileged to have promoted the greatest fight I ever saw in person. Better than Gaddy Ward, better than Corrales Castillo. I mean, just, just, you know, the, the fight probably would have been stopped today earlier, the beatings these guys took. It was just, just an incredible night. That's the greatest fight I ever saw in Philly. When you look back at all you've accomplished, all the fights, uh, I was reading the list of the Hall of Fames you're a part of with boxing and in the city. What are you most proud of? Um, 
my reputation for for being for making good fights and not getting caught up in the chicanery. I told this story uh, the other day to a writer when I, I guess sometime in the early 90s, I came home from work one day and my wife Linda was on the phone in the kitchen and our oldest son, Matthew, who has since passed away, but he was on the phone with Linda. I'll try and maintain my composure here. You know, your son wants to talk to us. I said, what's up, Matt? He said, Dad, how come when the sports writers write about boxing promoters, they always write that they, they're crooks. They cheat the fighters. They steal their money. They pay off the referees. They pay off the judges. They fix the rankings. They don't make the fights they're supposed to be. But whenever they write about you, they always write nice things. And then he finished up by saying, that's so cool. See, you can't buy that. You can't buy that. And that's what I'm proudest of. My reputation. Jay Russell Peltz, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This was really enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank boxing promoter Jay Russell Peltz for being our guest this week. If you like this show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, can you go ahead and leave us a rating and a review? You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to join us again next time when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.